hello and welcome to the Veer Vulnerabilist Veer Podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. And I'm Albert Imperato. Where we help men communicate and build empathy. All right. So, hey, we got, uh, you know, uh, a nice one today. We got another international guest, but, you know, this week has been a very interesting one for the world and, uh, you know, our listeners. But one thing I kind of want to make a comment on is a lot of the positive vibes that have been going around. And as much as the world seems to be falling apart, um, a few people are actually kind of seeing the uh, silver lining and the togetherness. I don't know how you feel about about it, Albert. You're kind of more in the thick of it than I am here out in the sticks. So uh, what are your thoughts on what's going on in the world today? Well, that's a, that's quite a question. Uh, yeah, it was amazing how the um, the tone and the, and the vibe changed so dramatically from, you know, a little bit of concern to, wow, New York City is really kind of going to shut down. Um, and there was, I think you're right, a, 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 some... Uh, people respond in tough times by kind of knowing just intuitively somehow how to be positive and how to be um, an example. And we, you know, don't want to get into politics and we don't have to talk about how we feel the government handled various aspects of what we're enduring right now. Um, just, just one thing I want to make very clear is that it's clear everyone will be impacted by this in some way. And I just want to send my my support and our support and love to people who've already had their lives dramatically impacted. Uh, Whether it's someone who's in quarantine, someone who's sick with the virus. Uh, I know one, one follower that I'm close with um, in uh, Italy, he, his girlfriend's grandfather died from the the virus. So we just, you know, we're, we're wanting to tape a podcast to continue to do what we do because that's important when we're, we're going through, hard times is to is keep doing what we do and what we believe in and what's important to us and connecting, uh, but also to recognize that the people are being impacted, their work, their anxiety levels, they're not seeing people they love. There's a lot of things being impacted by this. So we just don't want to appear that we're not, oh my God, these guys are just yakking away. Uh, you know, it's, it's happening, but now we're going to focus also on, on some other stuff and hopefully we'll provide some diversion and since I know Ken and what kind of human being he is, I'm sure some inspiration. Absolutely. Yeah. So Ken, really cool guy. Um, you know, we've been chatting back and forth uh, recently. So uh, I'm pretty stoked to, you know, formally meet you, you know, over the internet, you know, actually face to face now. But um, I'm going to go ahead and read his little bio and we'll get this thing started because, you know, some of our mis- listeners may know Ken Turner through his popular IG feed. Ken's Chucks, which showcases some of the most impressive collections of Chucks. And by Chucks, if you're not familiar, we mean the famous Chuck Taylor sneakers from Converse, which he has an extraordinary range of colors and patterns. He was born in Sydney, Australia. Ken, who is 25 years old, now resides in Brisbane, Australia, where he lives with his girlfriend, Rosie. He also attended the University of Queensland in Brisbane, where he majored in psychology and is currently working on his master's with the goal of becoming a clinical psychologist specializing in the mental health issues facing young people. Ken, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Welcome. Thanks a lot, guys. Nice to be here. It's yes, funny, though, are. the um, pronunciation differences. Oh, yeah. I'm sure we're going to have all different stuff. I'm just like, Brisbane. I'm Brisbane. Is it Brisbane? Is it Brisbane? How do we say it? Yeah, Brisbane. <laughs> I suspected. I thought, like, let's let a- Adam trip over that one. You know, why not? It'll be fun to watch. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, 
I'll be honest, like when I think of Australia, I think of kangaroos, koalas, and giant spiders that are bigger than the size of your hand. So, um, you know, I've never been, and I know very few people that have gone. So uh, the biggest part of Australia I know are people posting um, on IG. So it's like you and uh, partial to denim, uh, Paul, um, that's my exploration of Australia. So please enlighten us. <laughs> all the best parts. Yeah, right? <laughs> well, first of all, just one quickie too, Ken. You woke up early just for us. So thank you. It's a Saturday in Australia. It's a Friday afternoon here in the East Coast of the United States. So thank you for the early wake up. Um, my pleasure, guys. If you don't mind, just the ver- as, as succinctly as you can, because we want to talk with you about so many topics, tell us just a little bit about how your whole Chuck thing started. Um, do you remember like the first pair you bought and did you ever think you'd own several dozen pairs? Not at all. Um, the Chuck story is kind of similar to how I got into psychology, but it all centers around my dad. So when I grew up, he was a flight attendant and he would be away for long periods of time. And I always had a fondness towards him and I wanted to have something to relate to him by. And one of the things that he used to always do was go to Los Angeles because by the time I was born, he was kind of at that place in his career where he had a lot of choice over where he was able to fly. And so Los Angeles, United States, I built an attachment to the United States. And whenever he would be home, I'd watch movies with him. And a lot of the time, action movies made in Hollywood, which is another reflection of the United States. And I kept seeing this sneaker constantly pop up. And I started I don't know, fixating on it. And I was like, there's a sneaker, there's a sneaker, there's a sneaker. It's in the United States. Dad goes to the United States. If I have this sneaker, dad will like me more. That was literally my thought process as I think a 13 year old. And I was like, well, next time I go into the city, which was a big deal growing up, like a 30 minute drive from the city, I was like, I'll have to look out for it. And I remember spending six weeks allowance on my first pair of red high top converse all stars and i never took them off for probably six months and the kicker is my dad hates them (laughs) (laughs) oh man well that's super interesting that you thought like my my dad will what what was the phrase you used? he'll like me even more what was the phrase you used uh it just my i'll have something to relate to my father by if i have something american and he goes to america it's one of those things that young people make a strange association along the lines of dad goes there so if i do something that in some abstract way which was related to there we'll have a closer relationship because full disclosure my dad and i did not have any kind of broken relationship i didn't have to form this bond with him it wasn't like what's that you don't play sports i've got no time for you it wasn't like that at all it's just me in my head interesting and and today i mean you're very very close with your dad yeah absolutely probably my favorite family member oh not many people i think want to admit to that out loud but nothing against my mom i just love my dad he's great does he listen to podcasts because we'll have to get him hooked on this one i'll get them to have a listen and i can i can tell the aftermath already it'll be dad going that was cool and mom going why didn't you mention me (laughs) okay that's adorable all right i just want to just very briefly for adam's sake because i'm not sure i told him this um the reason i wanted you on the show besides the fact that you're just an awesome human being and very empathetic and just wise beyond your years um you told me early on a, a story that really just really struck me 
that you were a serious bodybuilder and that you had an injury and that very, very quickly you had to change very much your, your idea of who you are and what you were doing with your life. And I'm just wondering if you could just set up, uh, set that up and explain that story a little bit. Um, and because and, it was a very, a very powerful story that you told. It has stuck with me for a long time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so building off this whole notion of forming a relationship with my father, one of the things that I found out when I did like an English paper in high school was that when he was a young man, he used to go to the gym just for general fitness. But because of the time that he was going to the gym back in the 70s, it was a big culture of lifting weight. That's what you did at the gym. It wasn't treadmill and it wasn't, I'm going to try and run track. It was you lifted weight if you were a guy. And he got out all these old photos of himself at his prime. And I was like, wow, I want to look like that. Because again, going back, watching movies with my dad, seeing action stars like Sylvester Stallone, Arnold Schwarzenegger, it seemed like a very desirable thing to be that size if you wanted to show the world that you were a masculine person. And my dad, for better or worse, was a masculine person. So I was like, I want to make this association that I am akin to my father. So probably at age or 16, I started going to the gym just for fun. Then by the end of high school, it was something that I was like, yeah, this is something I'm good at. Then by the time I was probably 20, I was actually starting to get impressive. So I never competed. No one trying to look me up. I'm not in any magazines. I was, it was very amateur. But I got to a point where I had kind of gained that all-round large physique where you can see someone big arms and go, they have big arms. But then you see someone who's big and you go, whoa. And um, I was reaching this point where I was like, it's time for me to compete. This is who I am. This is what I'll do with my life. Even though I was at university at the time doing something unrelated to psychology, I was like, that's just a backup so I can use my brain as well. I'm going to be the next big thing. And I was completely identifying by my physical form. It was absolutely everything to me in terms of who I was. And I went through a really bad breakup with a partner before my current girlfriend, Rosie, and I spiraled into a bit of a rage-fueled gym obsession. So yes, I was already training constantly, but it was two times a day training the same body part four times in a week. And when you're at that level where you're moving dangerous kinds of weight, where you're getting up on dip bars and strapping 40 kilos around your waist and you already weigh 100 kilos, and you're putting all that stress on a muscle group, which although can be quite powerful, isn't designed for that kind of stress. I completely tore my right pec in half under 110 kilo bench press. and to kind of present the magnitude of that injury. A lot of the time when somebody tears a pec, what they'll do is they'll actually tear the tendon out of their arm and that can be put back. But I had a complete muscle tear through the lower two portions of my right pec and sounded like tearing cardboard in half in the gym. The guy on the other side of the building heard it. And um, when I went to the hospital, it was kind of, ambiguous as to what had happened as in what's my prognosis what's my diagnosis what's the recovery on this sort of thing so i was led into this false sense of security that it was just a major but not that kind of major injury that over time would heal and um 
I learned very quickly because at the time I was actually studying anatomy and physiology that this is broken forever. And the kind of surgery that I could undergo to try and repair it was basically, yeah, we can put stitches in it, but we'll isolate your arm for six months as in my palm strapped to my shoulder. And there's a good chance that even when that period's over, as soon as you move that muscle group again, the stitches will tear. So I had to make overnight a decision that was basically, you are no longer a bodybuilder in any way that will allow you to compete and win competitions. And the kicker of all of that is there's no point in my mind at the time of doing anything if your goal wasn't to achieve great things with it rather than to just participate because I've obviously had a lot of reflection on that since. But essentially, over the course of 10 seconds, my entire identity was removed from my control. Well, that is uh, that's super heavy. And yeah, just kind of having that earth shattering moment, you know, were you in the hospital at that time when that happened? Um, when I found out that it was inoperable. Yeah. Essentially. Yeah. Yeah. What, what was your next thoughts and what was your kind of, you know, thinking pattern for the next, I mean, I'm sure that took, you know, more than days and weeks to kind of repair that, but like what, what kind of came next? Well, the strangest thing was I learned that there's a stark difference between choosing to stop doing something and having something removed as an option. So I never would have been able to quit bodybuilding. I know that without a doubt in my mind that if, not, if that injury hadn't have happened and I just had to make the decision, do I want to stop? I would still be doing it to this day. And this is, we're talking almost five years ago now that this happened. And um, so I was young and not the mental giant you see before you now. <laughs> <laughs> but um, having it taken was such a strange feeling because I didn't feel like I'd quit. That was a big thing for me. I could never quit anything I valued or cared about. Never, 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 never could quit anything I cared about. But having it removed from an option, it didn't hit me as hard as I thought it would. And I mean, we don't exactly have a whole pile of time to go into it today because I could just go off on tangents for 20 minutes at a time. But I was lucky enough that one, I had another sport going at the same time. And two, I'd recently shifted my degree into psychology by that stage. So my thinking had changed a lot as well. And it was liberating is the best way to describe how it felt, which is so contradictory to what I'm sure people would considered would have been my response. And there was definitely a period where I sat in a room alone, staring out the door and out the window like, I'm nothing now. That's it. That was it. I'm 21 years old and crippled. That's the part of the story that just resonated and, and just knocked me on my butt when you first told me that story, when you said that word liberating that you actually felt a sense of liberation because it made me realize that losing something extremely dear to you, uh, something very important to you sets off this chain where you have to begin to understand who you are to really get down and understand who you are when something that is so defining changes in your life. And I'm sure we could find examples in other people's lives of those things, those moments 
in which things change rather dramatically. Um, this, this is a very particular one. I'm sure other people who've had these kinds of injuries or a, a type of injury of this nature uh, must, must confront that. Um, so you're studying psychology. So clearly you're studying subject matter that's now suddenly maybe made your own psyche and your own journey now is suddenly something that you almost have an objective interest in. Did you get almost a sense of separation and say, hey, I'm looking at Ken and what happened to Ken? I'm a psychology student and I'm looking at myself. You know, is that is that something that started happening where you were almost looking objectively at your own situation and get becoming almost fascinated by it in a way? After time, definitely. I don't believe anyone has the possibility of having an objective view on their own life or close relationships immediately. Emotions are too powerful. But the more you study critical thinking, which is essentially all psychology is in terms of an academic pursuit, the more you gain this ability, I've found to be able to step back from any situation. And the most difficult circumstances that that will ever be would be for yourself. And I imagine Obviously, I can't say for sure, but for your own children. Um, but for other people, it's become almost a simple task to go, this is the situation you're in. And then actually, there's the phrase of putting yourself in somebody else's shoes. But the way I like to process it as a thought exercise is putting somebody else's situation in front of yourself. Because putting yourself in somebody else's shoes is you have to try and think about how they would behave in that situation. But presenting the situation to yourself is how would I handle what they're going through? It's, a, in my opinion, an easier way to kind of process that by including your own point of view. But yes, there was definitely, to answer your question more simply, there was definitely moments where I was able to almost view my past identity and go, that's what he's going through, but I'm not him anymore. I guess that's how it felt, yeah. But after some time. And, and this, um, what drew you into psychology? What, what was it exactly that made you uh, say, that's what I want to study? Because clearly now that's become a big focus. You're continuing, you're aiming to become a, a psychologist. That's what the, the path that you're on. But at the time, what made you say, okay, I have to go into psychology now? It was actually extremely vivid. I was... Um, doing exercise and nutrition science at UQ to begin with. That was the whole, this is the academic pursuit that will align with my sporting career. And um, it got to a point where I had this group of friends and we'd all been doing the same subjects, but they were doing a slightly different course and they were going off to do a different subject. So I had to just choose some random elective to do. And I was like, oh, you know, a first year psychology course will be easy and I'll just do it because I'll be able to just float through it, get a high grade and it won't impact my GPA. And the, one of the very first things we learned about in this course, I was a couple of years older than all the first years by the stage. So I'm sitting at the back of the room acting like I'm all that. And we heard the story of Kitty Genovese, which is a famous bystander effect uh, story. And it's basically, if you're in a situation where you need to act, and there's lots of people around, you're less likely to act than if you're alone because you offset the social burden onto those around you. And the famous case was this woman was essentially sexually assaulted and ultimately killed over a period of roughly 60 minutes, but in a busy blue collar part of the United States. And by the time 
the police responded to the event. Like dozens of windows of the buildings, like lights were on, people were up, people watched and heard kind of the last 30 minutes of this whole ordeal and no one did anything. Finally, one old lady rang the police, but because she was buggered off by the noise. And um, I remember in the middle of class, I stood up and like slapped my desk and I was like, that is absolute crap. You're telling me that no one did anything because I have, I don't, one of those pet hates I have is I just can't stand sexual assault. It really, really makes me feel disgustingly uncomfortable. So I was just triggered in the middle of class. And I remember my tutor being like, okay, okay, it's all right. It's, we're just, we're just learning about it. And um, I remember feeling such a call to arms and an enragement that I was like, I need to do more psych courses. What am I missing out on? This is some cool stuff. And at the same time, I saw Goodwill Hunting for the first time. And uh, I remember seeing Robin Williams' display of what could, what a psychologist could be rather than this clinical idea of lie down on this couch and let's explore your childhood. It was more of this casual conversation about what do you like and how do you think that that's affecting your life and what's going wrong that isn't aligning with what you enjoy. And that dichotomy of that feeling of rage I had in the classroom and how calm that the same outcomes can be achieved. I think those two events combined in that sort of close proximity of time definitely is what drove me to keep studying psych courses. And then it was kind of like, I enjoyed them so much and I wasn't enjoying my other coursework that I just made the decision to change programs into psych completely. And my GPA went from like, eh, to amazing. <laughs> so I think that I think the uh, prowess in the field due to my interest definitely bolstered me staying there. And then that that's that's like, as I was saying with my other story, it's four or five years ago. There's so many layers to why I'm so passionate about it now. But it all stemmed from that moment. Well, you found you obviously found your passion and something that really engages so many aspects of who you are because not only I, you know, in my own experience with the, you know, communicating with you, there's a clarity to how you see the world, but there's also this very generous spirit that you have, this very loving, warm and empathetic uh, spirit. And I'm just wondering, is that, is that something you feel is sort of somewhat innate in your personality? Where, where did you learn this, this gift of empathy? I mean, you barely knew me and so often you would send a note just from seeing one of my posts on Instagram. And I was like, wow, this guy's in my head. Uh, there's some, a lot of empathy going on in there. So tell us, tell us, you know, what is your idea of what empathy is and why do you think you're an empathetic person? Empathy at a base level, I suppose. Well, I, I feel like I first should say thanks. I don't get many compliments like that. <laughs> Which thanks, is hard Albert. to imagine. <laughs> um, empathy at a base level for me without getting too diagnostic is just the ability to truly understand and in some ways experience how another person could be feeling not our feeling but could be feeling because it's always going to be your perception of what they're feeling and i believe when it's practiced as often as adam specifically mentions in his posts it's no different to any other skill grows over time and you get better at doing it and i think a lot of the people who have high levels of empathy have subconsciously been training it for a long period of their life so 
a lot of the time you'll find that the stereotype of women being more empathetic is true, not because of any biological difference between the genders, but because of the norms expected of women. They take care of their younger siblings when the parents don't want to hire a babysitter, and they might be more interested in their STEM fields of nursing and taking care of people who are vulnerable. And that leads to understanding that, oh, here's somebody who is going through a particular thing which makes it difficult for them. But from that young age, because of what is, and I am air quoting here, expected of their gender, they practice just understanding what other people are going through. And I believe that is the root difference and nothing else for why there is such an empathy difference between the binary genders. Um, rather than women have it because that's part of their DNA and men have, don't have it because they're broken in some way. I just, I don't believe that because more and more young people are growing up with similar levels of both across all genders. And I find that really, really interesting. And we've seen in society, there is a norm shift between what's expected in each of those masculine and feminine roles. Wow. I, I have to say, I love what you just said from, for many reasons, but one really key reason is that it removes this idea that empathy is a magic gift from some other force or, you know, some only spiritual, only, only ethical or moral. It actually says that we are trained. It, it is a muscle almost that we learn to use. And I, to me, that is a very powerful statement because I think a lot of people when you, who aren't, very empathetic who don't really understand what you're what you're talking about when you talk about it think that you're being kind of oh whatever that's like one of those vague words that oh my you know spiritual what does any of that mean prove it to me there's no proof you're basically saying you know this is this is a quality that comes from experience and there's a reason for it actually adam i could see you i could see your face i told you this guy is really smart um to go speak i could see you want to say something yeah, um, there's so much there, and I, I think you're spot on with what you're saying. And to contrast it, you know, for you know the more of the males, it's you know we've been trained and we've been um, accustomed to not show emotion and not express our feelings and not really listen to what other things are going, and also just kind of be like, hey, I'm right, and that's it. And if you don't think I'm right, then you know, screw off like that. You're just not, not a part of it. So the, those kind of contrasting things that, you know, we grow up with as men, it's like, Hey, um, there's winners, there's losers. Which one are you? And it's not like, Hey, do you understand what I'm going through? Like, do you understand, you know, just in sports sportsmanship, you know, understand how the other team feels. So it's, it's so crazy. And, um, you know, we're all just right now kind of really exploring that. And so I really love what you said there. And I kind of also want to bring something back um, to the, the Genovese case and that study with the, um, the bystander. And one thing I think that we're doing here on this podcast is being the one woman that called the police because there were, I think, like 30 people that just said, oh, someone else will do it. Oh, you know what? something's going on out there. I, I don't want to do it. I see other lights on in other buildings. They're, they're calling the police. Everything will be fine. 
And you know what? Like, no one's really calling out this this men's shift. And we're kind of the ones saying, like, hey, there needs to be a paradigm shift. There needs to be a mindset shift in male culture. So we need to be the ones speaking about it. We need to be the ones that are actually phoning the police in this kind of reference and actually saying something about it. So when it comes to speaking up about, you know, the the troubles, the vulnerability, the um, the shame and, you know, just sort of the more deeper emotions with men. Um, how do you think that other men and young people in particular can, you know, safely express those emotions? To be honest, I think it's a lot simpler than people think it is. But unfortunately, then I reflect on the fact that is it simpler or is it simpler for people in a situation like the three of us where we've been lucky enough through our experiences to be able to actually explore how we feel about things? But to me, being empathetic and exploring feelings has never been difficult. And I don't know why. And quite simply, I think it's I was lucky enough to have a home environment where I had enough of everything and experience that happened, experiences that happened in safe places that allowed me to never experience the shame around having feelings about things. But going forward, people want to practice specifically, like, I know I could be as politically correct as I want, but the purpose of this podcast is, is men. So for young men to explore it, it's just to start doing it. And to come back to the references you were making about athleticism, no one ever who's never run before can go out and run five kilometers, three and a half miles in any kind of way that's going to seem like an accomplishment. It's going to be slow. And even if you don't stop running that whole period and you can get it to the end without walking, it's going to be painful. Your breathing is going to be awful. You're not going to have that understanding. And that's the same sort of thing as if you were to go down to whatever it is that you do today and try and suddenly unlock empathy and be like, I'm going to have this great, meaningful conversation with someone. It's probably not going to happen. It could, but it probably isn't because that's not how it works. As we said, it's something that can be trained over time. Same as each time you go out for a run, you get a little bit fitter. You gain a slightly deeper understanding of how your breathing works. And that's how empathy works. You know, today you might have someone scream in your face and you might go, well, you're an idiot. But then the next time someone screams in your face, you might be able to stop just for that moment and say, you're an idiot, but why are you angry? Because I want to know because you yelled at me, but I didn't do anything as far as I can tell, which means you were already provoked. So I don't have to take ownership of your anger anymore. I can take the time to think to myself, why were you angry in the first place? And perhaps that's something that we can explore together. And if we can have an understanding of your anger, we can also start to change why you're expressing what you're feeling in such an aggressive way. But from point A of you're an idiot to point B to, hey, man, I can tell you're really angry. And I really hope it's not something that's hurting you too badly. But if you have the time, I'd love to sit down and have a conversation and discuss it with you. The point from, from those two points, it's not necessarily going to be a quick journey. For some, it is. But for some, it's a real burdenous thing that you have to work on, almost like learning a language. There's a language that exists below, say, English. 
for the people listening to this podcast. There's a language of emotions and human beings, we think we're experts at it because we can see a facial expression that's sad and go, that's sad. But we have an entire thesaurus of words that mean sad, but have slight differences. And I don't know about you, but I'm no expert at going, they're sad, they're depressed, they're anxious, they're mourning, they're grieving, they're going through a breakup. All I see is some derivative of they're upset. And the language of emotions to carry on that abstract kind of idea needs other language to explore because otherwise we're assuming and the only person who ever knows how someone feels at face value is that person. So if you want to know, you've got to ask questions. And asking questions about how people feel is how you develop empathy. Spot on, man. Yeah, that is a, a great explanation. And while you were talking, I was trying to look up a quote about um, you know what makes a superhero. And it goes something, I'm probably going to butcher it, but it's like a superhero isn't a superhero all the time. They're just a hero or they're brave in one moment. And in that moment where we can take this conversation is that if in that one moment where you see someone express, you know, being upset or you can tell someone that they're visibly sad is instead of just saying, oh, they're that or oh, they're this is just like you said, asking that question. And in that moment, say, hey, what's really going on here? Could you tell me a little bit more about what you're feeling? No, <laughs> we're That's trying not to laugh. That is a cat for a second, a kitten. Yeah. For a second, I'm like, that is the oddest sound coming from Ken's apartment. And then I see the <laughs> tail above your shoulder. So yes, that. <laughs> see, I fed them when I woke up to make sure they wouldn't cry. But now Rosie's woken up and left the room, and they've developed this <laughs> annoying <laughs> habit that as soon as somebody else wakes up, usually I leave to go to work. So they try and go, Mom. He didn't feed us. Feed us again. <laughs> I actually make that exact same sound when I'm ready for a martini. <laughs> it is five o'clock after a hellish, almost five o'clock after a hellish week. So I'm, I'm, I am really feeling it tonight that I'm going to be enjoying that martini. Uh, one of the uh, things that I want to just close the, the, the part we were just talking about is to say how interrelated this empathy experience is. Because it, the onus, um, it's not just on, it, it's on both people in, in a way. It's like learning how and uh, forcing yourself to be vulnerable enough to share some of the things that are going on in your life to enable other people to um, help us. Um, and then on the other hand, it's other people being curious enough and taking the responsibility to notice what's going on in the lives of other people. It's kind of like a dual, it's like a dual machine. And the more both parts of it are running, the more forward momentum there is in a certain, to a certain degree. And I like it because it does also say that we all have a responsibility in this. We all have skin in the game. Even if we're, if we're having, if we're in a good place one day, then maybe our job is to be paying a little bit more attention to what's going, what's going on. Or if we're hurting, then we, we may need to be more vulnerable and find a way to reach out to others and, and you know, just basically empower ourselves to, 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 to start dealing with whatever the core issue is that's, that's bringing the problem. 
So I don't know, I, I, maybe I'm not being very articulate there, but it seems like it puts us all in sort of a give and take situation with empathy, that it's a two-way street. No, absolutely. Um, the, the word vulnerability in itself, especially for an audience that's masculine, is taboo to the point like the word fat. Fat is something that we see on a food label and we go, don't want any of that. Fat's bad. Fat means I'll get fat. But fat is the single most important nutrient group for human beings at, at a macro level. It's just you want to have a lot of calories in the smallest meal portion possible. You eat something dense in fat. Fat is a great thing, but the word itself, it's almost sour to stay. And the word vulnerability is the same. It's got this connotation that there's something wrong. It's bad. It's negative. If I'm feeling vulnerable, I'm feeling weak and men don't like to be weak, do they? So. When you explore the fact that a word is a description and not an identifier of who you are, to be vulnerable is essentially to be alive. And people experience vulnerability in everything they do all the time. Vulnerability can translate into so many other emotions. If you're going for a new job, that anxiety you're feeling is because you're in a vulnerable state. There's no certainty that you're going to get the role. So you're vulnerable because you don't know what your future is going to be. If you are feeling upset about something because someone's just had a go at you, that feeling of defeat is a vulnerability because in that moment, you didn't have complete control over an outcome. And it's extremely important to reframe the way you see words like that because words are just words. We decide what they mean. So you decide if something like vulnerability means weakness or if something like vulnerability means an exploration of possible strengths. Because if you never acknowledge that there's something within you that you need to work on, it will never change and you will never grow. It's the same as all the famous quotes in the world about if you've never experienced failure, you've never experienced true growth because you just exist in a plane where what you can do is what you can do. And anything beyond that, that you have a risk of not succeeding at is unattainable. So you will never attain it. Man, that is some powerful stuff and some really, really wise words, man. I think uh, Albert and I just kind of, we had a, a little deer in headlights moment because we we're just like, wow, this is profound. Um, so thank you for that. And one thing um, we also want to kind of talk about is, you know, the the difference between uh, masculinity in Australia versus, you know, kind of what you've seen here in the States or uh, what you've noticed across, you know, is there a different feel? Is there a different kind of vibe to it? Or is there anything that we should know that's different? Similar to the United States, there's two kinds of demographic, like major demographics in Australia. And when I say demographics, I don't mean obviously different levels of um, economic status, but I mean more along the lines of You've got the Australians that actually make up 95% of the population, and then you've got the 5% that are the stereotypes that you'd see in films. So like if you've seen Crocodile Dundee, no one is like that where we live on like the, the coastal areas. But out west, where the farmers are, they, they have that more stereotypical traditional Australian mindset. So it's not that they don't exist, but it's not like they're walking down the streets that's not a knife, this is a knife, just in broad daylight. And 
the thing is, and that's similar, I guess you guys have just your general American population, but then you do have the guys, like the reason why white trash stereotypes exist because there is white trash in the United States. It's not that they're not there. Um, and that kind of demographic for you guys, same as for us, is that is that is where toxic masculinity gets to exist from. That's the original like spore sitting down in the the dirt, sprouting all its other crap. And um, that's that's your whole like, what you can't do a hard day's work out on the farm, you're no good then. Hugh Jackman in Australia kind of thing, except he kind of adds a softness to that idea. But I would say that just as much for you guys the only thing that's different is the accent it's this it's, it's it's this same idea that there's this set of tasks that you must partake in to be masculine and thus a man and it's just absolutely trash because one of the things that struck me the absolute hardest from the when you guys first started this podcast is when Adam was saying the single greatest thing that a man can do, what is it to be a man is to provide for the people that you care about. And traditionally, yes, that means your female wife and your beautiful atomic family of children who are heterosexual, but that's not what it means. It means to provide for the people you care about. Provide doesn't need to mean make the money. You could have a partner who's extremely wealthy and they go do that and you provide for your partner by staying home and taking care of the domestic duties. To me, that's still providing for people I love and care about. So by definition, that's masculine as heck. Well, thank you, man. Yeah. That episode uh, with Tim, um, you know, I, as I said it on our, you know, 2019 wrap up was one of the most impactful for me and, you know, I just want to give a, a shout out to Tim as well. Um, recently, he uh, he quit his job and uh, is going to start a new one with uh, Red Wing. And, you know, it's just bravery and um, just following his passions and just kind of being okay with taking a whole nother direction. And again, with this kind of, you know, what we're talking about with with Ben is like, hey, we need to we need to take a hard right turn. You know, um, there there's stuff out there that is is great and there's stuff out there that's not but what we want to talk about here is what we want the next generation to become so i mean you've dropped some serious serious knowledge on us today ken and we are grateful for that do you have any last kind of words to uh to bring this all together before we wrap it up um i think something that struck me once is there's a um, famous psychologist called Daniel Kahneman and he does a lot of work into social psychology and insight and it's something that I mean I'd always be happy to explore later on but there was this whole thing in one of my courses where he ventured down this realm of you can't do everything you can't be an expert at everything in your own head and he recommended and this is out of context but it, it's it's still it still suits this situation that he says, choose a few things, a few important things in your life and focus on those things and be really good at those things. And if those things are core to your everyday interactions, they will greatly change your environment for you. And bringing it into the theme of the podcast is we're talking about developing empathy and removing the stigma 
of what it means to be a masculine man and what it actually could be. And I think that's a message I would give to people is step into that part of your life, that specific part, and really think to yourself, how am I doing in this area? Am I listening to this podcast because I think I have high levels of that and these are my people? Or am I listening to this podcast because this is something I care enough about or I'm interested enough about to change? And take it to your friendship circle. If you have friends around you who you think probably could be better, have a conversation about it. And if they're resistant to a point that it seems like nothing's going to change, I mean this wholeheartedly, find new friends. Because one of the most important ways to grow any skill is to be surrounded by people who are going to foster that growth in you. And to go right back to when Adam was talking about how there's winners and losers, there's an opportunity cost to everything that we do. If you ever win, that means someone directly near you has had to lose by default. And if we exist in this binary thought process of you can only win or lose, if your friends are the ones losing and you're the one winning, you can share the wealth of that success by helping them grow from their experience of not succeeding rather than failure and losing. And developing this community like Adam and Albert are doing is one of the pinnacle cornerstones of how that's going to happen. And I think that a lot of people who are listening to this podcast think it's fantastic. I think it's great, but there's a value in what you two are doing beyond even what I think you might have considered. And it's the kind of thing that hopefully later in my life, I'll be able to take into the research that I do. Okay. I'm officially just, I'm going to collapse on the floor with a mixture of amazement, glee, um, just humble reverence. You are 25 years old and aside from the beautiful thing you just said about what we're doing, I just, there's, every time I talk to you, you never disappoint me. You're, there's a spirit in you. There is a wisdom in you. There is a, a humanity in you that if we could bottle it and ship it around the world, we would cure the ills of mankind. So there's a, there's my opinion. Um, I don't, I really don't have anything else to say, but I love you, dude. And I'm looking forward to, to catching you more on Instagram. I, I urge other people to uh, follow your feed, drop you a DM, and you are going to be um, you're going to be giving us some great gifts with your talents and your interests in this world. And I don't know, I'm I'm going to hand it over to Adam. He'll say so long. And we're going to ask you to say your name after we say ours. Uh, thank you, Ken. Yes, thanks thank a lot, you, man. <laughs> just before you close, Adam, can I drop one last thing? Uh, It'll be course. quick. I, I promise. I just wanted to say to everyone that just as a disclaimer i am not actually a practicing mental health professional in any way yet and everything that i've said today is just although researched my personal feelings on the matter and insight and anyone who actually feels they're in a place where they need professional support i would encourage them completely to seek that out this podcast is amazing things but we also have to remember that if you're truly hurting there are avenues for you to engage with as well and I, I just i wanted to add that from an ethical point of view absolutely Brilliant. and i'll be the first to admit that you know i i see seek therapy and i don't see any shame or you know i feel less of a man to, from talking about my feelings so if we, you do we can add shame way, to the same word to the same word list as vulnerability yeah. shame and vulnerability and now happy words we like those words yeah 
So if you need help, please seek a professional. And like you said, within your friend group, take that binary win-loss and make it a win-win. So thank you again, Ken, for that. That was amazing. Well, this has been another episode of the Veer Vulnerabilis Veer podcast. I'm Adam Glinsky. I'm Albert Imperato. And I'm Ken Turner. Thank you for listening.